Okay, welcome to the show, everybody. It's House of Decline. Uh, Steven is my name. We also have Alex here. Hi. And this week, I read an essay by Neil Stevenson, who is a sci-fi writer that I like, uh, that he wrote in 1999 called In the Beginning Was the Command Line. And it's about computers, which I love. And so on this episode, we're going to talk about technology and how crazy crazy and complicated (laughs) it is, how you can do different stuff with it, like connect all of the computers together. And then um, that's it. That's really all. (laughs) Yeah, you can connect them all together. It's a neural network. It's just like uh, the Navi tree in Avatar. Yeah. And then we'll all have hair sex. On actually, that's coming too because they have those. They have those like fleshlights that mm-hmm. are like yep. that you can have sex with a person te- electronically, right? Right, and you know, as tweeted out today, I think Elon Musk has invented a way to get a, a monkey to suck off a computer, which was. <laughs> Uh, that was put out today. He used, he, He's connecting a computer to a monkey's brain, and then the monkey starts blowing the computer. It's crazy. So we have that to look forward to. I'm very optimistic that soon we'll all be somehow neuro-linked into sucking off digital objects um, because that's really the best way to keep us from fighting each other. Which We um, have explored the Internet, but have you ever sucked the Internet's dick? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is the new hypergoop technology. It's like, oh, download has got a whole new meaning. Yeah, um, but this Loads. touches on, a, on an idea that's in the Neil Stevenson essay, which is that it seems like the media and everything surrounding us is like trying to keep us feckless so that we don't all nuke each other. Um, and there's that idea of like uh, that's kind of a conspiratorial idea that like they're all they're all sort of working together to keep us from achieving our full potential of violence. <laughs> um, but it is a bit interesting. Uh, they're trying to make you know the the brain and the and the CPU combine into mm-hmm. one thine primordial like cyborg thing. Uh, and then that's how we'll invent God. So that's a cool I think, project. I so is that the general thrust of the essay? Like through online, uh, through onlineification, we'll do the human instrumentality project, and then eventually become AI God or whatever. No, the general thrust is like that. It's it's um, the general thrust is that we should all be using Linux. Um, that's the general <laughs> thrust. And then he goes uh, into that in in detail about using Linux. He started off as a Mac user in the 80s. And those people are extremely dedicated to Macs, generally speaking. But for Neil Stevenson, who is a writer, he goes into the experience of have, he was trying to like save a word a, a word file on his Mac in like 1987 and somehow it deleted this like basically novel he was working on. And he freaked out and went to a store to, to go have them help, like went to find some tech geeks. Um, and they hooked his hard drive up and they're like, wow, it's wiped 
ev like the there's no trace of this file left like sometimes they're able to find a file that's been deleted like in a sector on the hard drive but in this case it was just gone and so that's mm. when he switched off from max entirely despite being an early adopter um so and then yeah he goes into his experience using linux but it's not a very technical essay I'd, i really would recommend it because it's not hard to understand and he goes into extended metaphors um that are fun like he got like there's an entire metaphor about him going to disney world there's just a lot of cool stuff about culture media and the computers we use and the reason mm -hmm. why every computer has a graphical user interface instead of just mm -hmm. a flashing cursor which is how it used to be you just had a, a flashing cursor on a black screen and you would type commands into it and sometimes if you type the right commands a cool thing will happen so um but now yeah. you have like something that's more human oriented or more like i wonder what i mean neil stevens is still alive i shouldn't be saying that but uh so i wonder what neil stevenson's reactions to stuff like um second life and world of warcraft and stuff like that or twitch yeah. even example no, he has which a is book. still a graphical user interface yeah at, he at has a heart, book but it's a he has a whole, whole book of sort of surrounding um what happens when you're in a video inside a video game can't remember it's like one or two books back yeah um he's hip to the technology the ready player one element of it what's okay so what's interesting about it is i get how it's supposed to pacify us because it definitely pacifies me um like i am i am kept inactive by the endless choice of entertainment that i have before me and uh sort of the expanse the amazing expanse of the world all being condensed down to this graphical user interface keeps me inactive because it simultaneously is able to make sense of the world and uh, allows me to never interact with it actually. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's sort of the purpose of, of the sinister GUI. Yeah, and a, uh, a GUI or graphical user interface is like a stack of metaphors that don't necessarily make sense when you put them together like it's a stack of weird abstractions and metaphors um you drag an icon to the trash you open a window i mean you're not really dragging it i mean it's it's a weird like that's not necessarily consistent in the in the environment necessarily like it makes sense to us now but if you sort of start thinking about all the abstracted metaphors um it's kind of like a minefield of mixed metaphors which for certain people who may be more neuro neurodivergent when you mix metaphors that kind of breaks their brains and that may explain why linux has a, a reputation for a certain type of guy or gal <laughs> um <laughs> it's like i don't understand what you mean um can you please drag a that? file to the trash? Yeah. Uh, no, we shouldn't make. But we love all of our neurodivergent listeners. Well, of which you know. all of you are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, 
so um but here here's yeah, yeah, I, they, I got a list of some more of the metaphors so like give me some more metaphor what's the disneyland metaphor i'm super interested in that one well the disneyland is or the i think it's disney world which i can never remember which one's where and which one was first and uh, it doesn't matter one of the theme parks it's the there's a, there was a Disney World that he went to that had like a Taj Mahal like life-size scale reproduction of like Taj Mahal in a ruined in like forest in India mm-hmm. um, and he talks about how he's walking through this and there's not a single like unique identifier of anyone who made it and it's this he knows that it was a massive amount of work created by a huge team of people filled with individual artists and everything is perfect but it's and it seems like it's the real world but it's not the real world it's a it's like a something placed over the world that allows us to understand it um and but it's been cleaned up because it's not actually like what it's like in India. Everything's extremely yeah. sanitized. There yeah. aren't a shit ton of people everywhere and a lot of noise. Yeah, there aren't a shit ton of, of fucked up tourists as well. Like, there's <laughs> Which no... Which is part of the experience. Yeah, there's nothing... Everything is manicured. And that's... He compares that to um, Windows or, or Mac OS, one of the graphical user interfaces, where it's mm-hmm. it's abstracting what you're what's actually going on in the computer and when you use the command line you're one level down it's still an abstraction level up from the what the machine knows how to do which is expressed in machine code which he says only very special people know how to read very very special people. there's like oh uh, you know you can i don't know probably in the 10 10,000 number range mm. of people who can do that if Not I can many. relate this, if I can relate this back to Kingdom Hearts for a second, <laughs> almost made me spit uh, out my water. So, um, so in Kingdom Hearts and in the new Space Jam Legacy movie and in the Emoji movie, um, you see a lot of they they travel to different websites or different worlds, and those are conveyed as little planets, in the same way that in the uh, Antoine Saint Exupéry classic the little prince the little prince is on like a bunch of little planets and he travels to a bunch of different worlds to experience like these sort of um mitigated experiences or the the, yeah the, the these experiences that don't comprise the entirety of reality but are sort of compartmentalized and separated um and it's very in the kingdom hearts worlds it's these disney worlds but you'll see on the little planets they only have like two locations represented on the little planets so it's this bodlerized and limited version of the world that's inherently not as expansive as the one that you see on film which through your suspension of disbelief becomes expansive and whole these these planets in kingdom hearts these little graphical user interfaces of these uh, previously larger ideas uh, become simplified and emptier. Uh, yeah. So, so Stevenson says that that's because what's missing is that this um, this isn't they're, they're missing it being translated into like clear and explicit written words. It's all being transmitted in images and experiences 
and user interfaces. Mm-hmm. Um, that that they're they're eschewing the written word, which Stevenson says is the only really like non fungible thing, um, mm. the only really unique thing in order to transmit information is words. Uh, so. Well, yeah. that that goes into like a deeper philosophical discussion of like if you develop a pictorial language, will that eventually become words? If you if you develop that type uh, of symbolic language, well, that's uh, that's I mean, one. like just, I Asian know. languages are pictorial lang- have pictorial uh, written languages. So I don't know. I I don't necessarily. I don't know. Well, so uh, he he ties us into like what like um. The, the sort of American process of of conveying val- a value system to people in the future, and he says we do that through culture like Disney, and mm-hmm. it's it's able to be transmitted all around the world. Like so, D- Disney gives us like a certain set of values. Like there's a value yeah. system in Disney that some people find really appealing. And well, that's what's unique about. I think Disney's an interesting example because it's the it's one of the only companies I can think of besides like other wholesome companies like Build a Bear Workshop or something like that that comes with an ideology. Like uh, Warner Brothers doesn't have an ideology packaged with it. You can't think of you 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 know the Disney ideology, even though that ideology has since become diluted by the fact that it now owns you know married with children. <laughs> so let me let me read one paragraph from here. Um, so this is from the essay. Uh, a huge, rich, nuclear-tipped culture that propagates its core values through media steepage seems like a bad idea. There is an obvious risk of running astray here. Words are the only immutable medium we have, which is why they are the vehicle of choice for extremely important concepts like the Ten Commandments, the Koran, and the Bill of Rights. Unless the messages conveyed by our media are somehow pegged to a fixed written set of precepts, they can wander all over the place and possibly dump loads of crap into people's minds. And I, you know, that's mm. kind of what's going on with QAnon, and what's being exploited uh, in people's minds is being done by um, people who understand technology and who use computers without graphical user interfaces. Okay, okay. Here's where here's where my the socialism gears start turning and thinking about you know what an alphabet uh, really is versus say what the symbols on a graphical user interface, especially on a Mac or a PC are. What those symbols are, are corporate owned language. That is privately owned language that you have a license to and that you are using. And that if we're not careful, will become the parlance uh, of, our, of our general world. And as such, you know, all of our language will be mediated by the powers that be. Whereas with an alphabet, that's a truly universal you can't you can't copyright the alphabet even though google changed their name to alphabet presumably to do so right yeah they're gonna somehow figure out a way to do it to to own every letter (laughs) yeah 
<laughs> we own B. We got B. <laughs> we bought the copyright we, to B. We bought every letter but Q. <laughs> oh, no. Jim Watkins on that. Yeah, Jim Watkins well, figures out how to buy Q. <laughs> <laughs> I bought so the that's letter what, Q. That's what's also interesting about, and the direct counter to the Neil Stevenson essay is that while these graphical user interfaces uh, pacify us, what Q represents is a shift in this paradigm where these graphical user interfaces actually can radicalize us, maybe not in the direction that Neil Stevenson would like, but definitely um, we've seen the power of this to actually activate people in a way that it hasn't before. And I think from the very early days of 4chan, 4chan was weird because it was able to mobilize because it seems organic and it seems like you're convincing yourself to do it, which is what's the interesting thing about anonymous activism or like stochastic activism like that. Because in the early days of 4chan, all of these shiftless, apolitical anons went out to protest Scientology in droves. In, in huge numbers that, like, none of these people had ever gone out to protest anything before, and they went for this because they had all convinced themselves yeah, um, and uh, that uh, this was something that they had decided on, when really it was decided by themselves and the group. And Jim Watkins, I don't know how savvy he is. Maybe Ron Watkins understood this more and explained it to Jim. Ron and Jim Watkins, for people who don't know, are... Basically, they, they are QAnon. They're the owners of 8chan, and uh, they are uh, genius internet trolls who are also the some of the worst and most uh, appropriate people on the planet, just to look at. <laughs> They're just the weirdest fucking looking people on Earth. But Jim and Ron Watkins understood the power of this stochastic form of media interface to... Um, get people active because it makes it seem as if you're not taking orders but rather acting on your own instinct which is why i think it's more powerful in activating people that way so i think this is sort of like maybe a new paradigm that neil stevenson didn't necessarily predict with the, his 1999 essay like mm -hmm. what chan culture and what anonymity and that type of thing does to um how a person brings their online self into the real world yeah, I mean, he's he's not he doesn't go that far. Um, internet culture was not a huge problem in 1999. It was thought to be a, yeah. a very very cool like techno utopia type thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it, it is the the paradigm change. Like, it's interesting to me that in this Q documentary, all of the people who are really into it don't actually use 8chan because they don't like the interface. And there's, <laughs> and there's like, there's like, they're like, yeah, we, we, we get it cleaned up. We get a cleaned up version without all the gross stuff and the weird interface. And the, there's a under, sort of an under subterranean group of people who are pushing this stuff along because they know how the stuff works. They know how technology works. And mm -hmm. it's easy to be manipulated if you don't know how technology works. Um, mm -hmm. Because you don't, you, you're, you're presented with this interface that is causing you to go in a certain direction. Like It's like 
driving a car that you can't turn left in. The steering wheel stops when you try to turn it to the left. You can only make right turns. And if that's the only car you've ever had, you'll never even know that you don't have to <laughs> that you don't have to make a huge U-turn every time you, you want to turn left and and then make three right turns. <laughs> I just like that character that you've just created, and I imagine his name is Barry, and he lives in the north of England, and he's like, "Oh no, I'll just keep making. Oh, every trip takes me like seventy minutes because I don't know how to left her. I'm not at Amber Turner, Zoolander. I'm related to that movie." <laughs> and I mean, um, if you don't, if you're, if you're, so the the two groups that he identifies are the Morlocks and the LOE or the LOI from H.G. Wells' time machine. And the Morlocks are the ones who know how everything works, and they are the computer programmers and the technicians at Disney World. And the the LOI are like the middle middle to upper class people who can afford to uh, pay for the fruits of their labor. Um, Stevenson is showing, uh, uh, you know, his class here by not talking about poor people at all. But um, <laughs> the intersection of, of poor people and technology is always a, a couple years behind and has been like they, like made worse by assholes like Mark Zuckerberg, who does stuff like um, gives everyone in a developing country a Facebook phone that can only connect to the Internet through Facebook. So millions and millions of people in developing countries only ever experience the internet through Mark Zuckerberg's fucked up brain. Yeah, mediated corporate language. That's what's happening. Yeah. Trying to own the goddamn alphabet. Yeah. Facebook is trying to own the internet. And what we have now is a competition of about four to five companies trying to own everything. Um, Mm -hmm. Amazon is the closest. Amazon is closest to owning everything. The reason Amazon mm-hmm. needs to be broken up, it has nothing to do with its delivery business of goods to you. And if anyone ever uses that as an argument, like, oh, well, you like getting stuff the next day, that is not the part of Amazon that needs to be broken up. Amazon owns, <laughs> Amazon owns most of the Internet. And that's what needs to be broken up. And Google owns yeah, but it's the invisible. entire it's... advertising industry. And that's what needs to be broken up. It's the invisible world, and you only get the language to uh, decode this invisible world if, one, you're just like one of those autodidacts that who, despite circumstances, you know, just manages to teach themselves that language, which is very hard to do, and you have to be uh, unusually smart to do. Uh, Or uh, you go to college, and you get the education, and you have the money in order to decode this language. It's like... It's like... uh, I always thought it was the irony that you only get to really learn about communism. and co- It's true that the academy does teach you communism, but the people that would really benefit from learning about socialism, i.e. working class people, don't get the opportunity to go to the academy to learn about it because they're you know, to start off in a, in a, in a less uh, advantageous position. I'm not saying, you know, if the Bessemer Amazon unions had read the Communist Manifesto, (laughs) that's a... No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Obviously, there's a lot of reasons. And never blame workers 
for why a union uh, union drive doesn't pass. If you do that, you are the shittiest person on earth. Yeah, oh yeah. If we're talking about the the Bessemer Union uh, vote that did not go the way people wanted, um. it did not, and it, it went. It was they crushed it. Although there were um, there's an asterisk. Vo- there was vote tampering yeah. for sure, but. I still believe even with the vote tampering, I think it probably wouldn't have gone through anyway. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a problem in that Amazon could just decide to shut down operations in that entire state. Oh, wow. Yeah, big, big asshole outside my window. <laughs> are you, uh, a, are you on has, a freeway? Yeah. You on an interstate? <laughs> <laughs> Alex, what? Uh, do you, are you, are you uh, what is the word? How, houseless? No, abodeless? Abodeless. I'm I'm lean to less. That's I'm that's sorry. mean. There are a lot of lean to less people anyway, out, in, out in the yard. What were we talking about? I just uh, Amazon Bessemer Union. Oh, yeah. Amazon owning everything. Oh yeah. Um, so Amazon could probably just pull out of that entire area and just set up a shop in a different town, and they have that that like. And then those people are fucked if Amazon does that. So there's yeah, no. There, there's literally an episode of The Office where this happens. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't blame them at all because there's probably not. The thing is, there's probably not a better job around right now there. Which. I don't know, Bessemer. I, I shouldn't make assumptions about Bessemer, Alabama. I, well, I just I feel like it might that might be the best thing going. And if they decided to do a union and then Amazon was like, OK, we're going to put our our factory in a, another town. Goodbye. That would it, suck. Uh, it employs three percent of the town, which is a pretty significant number. Uh, yeah, that would destroy the town. And which is I mean, I don't know. I don't know much about the town, I but I've read that. It doesn't have much else employment opportunities besides Amazon. Yeah. So, but, you know, that that just uh, goes into the general Amazon is too big to really do anything to. You know, there it's achieved this thing where it seems like it has this impenetrable power. You know, the only thing I can see happening to it is, like, Bezos dies and there's this weird power vacuum that happens in the company and through petty you know corporate battles that's how amazon gets broken up yeah i think i mean unions historically have been more powerful in the northeast so a union drive in the northeast probably do better i think that that would be my inclination um it's gonna happen again yeah i i I can't see it not happening again i mean one third still pretty fucking good you know especially considering how much anti-union propaganda there is out there yeah Uh, the fact that it was even two to one the fact that it wasn't a bigger margin means that um there is skepticism of the old love your employers philosophy that is so prevalent in america yeah well i mean i think i mean musk Elon Musk has a leg up on Bezos in that more people have, there's like a cult of personality around Elon Musk that I think Bezos struggles with. Um, Yeah, because, well, Bezos isn't a hype man. Bezos is an actual competent businessman and like understands, uh, understands supply chains and, you know, uh, leveraging debt in a way that Elon Musk, uh, that's not his ability. Elon Musk's ability is pure hype. He understands the nerdy male mind like nobody else. The nerdy male mind at all echelons of power 
like the Kissinger nerdy male mind and the Pepe nerdy male mind. He gets it. And he understands what makes them excited, what gives them boners. We should and send Elon Musk to Elon Musk should go take out the Jim Watkins. <laughs> if, if Elon Musk wants to like become Tony Stark, then he should just start taking out the taking out the worst internet troll we've ever known. Uh, I think Elon Musk would probably like Jim. I think uh, Jim Watkins and Ron Watkins are probably into Elon Musk. But Elon Musk shouldn't be into them. Ah. Embrace the light, Elon Musk. I could see Elon Musk doing a very ill-advised interview with Jim and yeah. Ron Watkins. Smoking a doobie. Being like, haha, <laughs> memes are awesome sauce, don't you agree? Yeah. Uh, my favorite thing in the Q documentary so far has been the South African um, guy and his wife. Uh, oh, yeah. Baruch he was definitely alter. a fake Q. Yeah. <laughs> You're just LARPing. <laughs> it's like a like a 50-year-old guy who go, who's, goes on chance all day which I can't believe exists. People uh, love it. They wow. love that life. It's the GUI. You know, even though even though it has a bad interface, it's it's I think that interface leads to this sort of conspiratorial thought. Like it's important that there's all of this random horrible shit surrounding the Q drops because that's what gives you the satisfying of nature of like Oh, you feel like you're a detective and you're going to the depths of the internet alleyways to, you know, meet Deep Throat or something like that. So it's part of the it's part of the mystery and the fact that you have to like really search and scour and interact with a lot of nefarious characters is part of that sort of fantasy element that yeah. is why people are so propelled into activation by QAnon, I think. Well, there mark my words, there's going to be like a Q Linux like OS that gets put out pretty soon i'm i'm betting you um mm. and it's a little worrisome but that the tech companies are like the major tech companies are starting to ban right-wing people i think that's bad because they're gonna go to the free stuff which is linux and then linux is gonna be overrun by alt-right weirdos being racist and that sucks that's gonna suck yeah you've already you talked about how like uh Linux people who make fun of the Mac versus PC people, um, they use language that has now been adopted by the alt right, right? Yeah, there, the they've been there's been a merging um, of mm. Linux people, Linux enthusiasts, and alt right, and Mac versus PC to them is like Democrats versus Republicans, kind of. Mm -hmm. um, that's loose. I mean. No, that's actually pre that's pretty good. That's a pretty good analogy, I have to say. It's all glad-handing the same uh, system where corporations spy on you and take your shit and mediate language. Yeah, so, but I think there's always going to be a core set of users who are not crazy fascists, um, but the, a, a very vocal minority of them are, and it's growing as, mm -hmm. like, the tech companies start banning people. I mean... You have um, alt-right people putting out lists, like boycott lists, and Microsoft and Google are on the list of boycott, like corporations to boycott. And when I, and Apple is too, obviously. When I saw that, I'm like, oh no, oh no. <laughs> the, all, the, all the truck people are coming to Linux. Like, mm. they're all gonna be like, dang it, I'm gonna shoot this computer. So we, <laughs> we have to create a left-wing OS now. 
Well, there. I mean, there's there have been attempts at something not like that, but I mean, do you know about Temple OS? No, I I've heard the name before, but I'd have no idea what it is. Temple OS was a guy, a, a genius computer programmer with schizophrenia who was convinced God was telling him how to build the perfect operating system. And he built it, and it's called Temple OS, and you can install it, and it is psycho. Um, <laughs> yeah, if you want to test uh, it out, you can just you can uh, you you can do it in a virtual machine. You can use VirtualBox and install it to test it out. Give it a little test run, have some fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, I forget the name of the guy who made who made it. I'll have to look up who made. Hold on, excuse the typing. Um, let's see. Oh, Terry Davis. Terry and, Davis. Yeah, it's a biblical genius. Themed, Lightweight operating system. Yeah. What's so good about Temple OS? Oh, it's not What's necessarily good. good. It? It's not good. It's it's just like it takes a genius to write an operating system by like alone. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he all but he was also he was a genius who had schizophrenia. So it's just like a fascinating piece of of art, basically. Mm-hmm. That that is. I mean just at a at a higher level now speaking of wacky digital art nfts everyone's talking about nfts Mm -hmm. which we talked about i feel we we are very uh we are very prescient on the show because about a month before all of this nft shit blew up we had steve on the show talking about it Mm -hmm. saying you know it's uh it's this thing where it's digital art and now NFTs have become this sort of meme shorthand for stupid, destructive capitalist thing. Um, but I, something that may shock you, unpopular opinion. I mean, we have had Steve on as on a guest, and we like Steve very much, so it's evident we aren't as hostile towards NFTs as other people. But, you know, NFTs, they're, they're not as bad as people would make them out to be. I don't think they're bad at all. People need to... Like with the environment stuff, that's BS. That's a bunch of BS. Can't like that's not th- a reason to oppose it. It's because it's not like that's like any computer that has to be on twenty four hours a day is taking up energy. What about street lights? <laughs> it's for Whoa. like we accept energy usage for a purpose, and this is not a stupid purpose. So. It's, well, some people do call it, okay, so the other reason why people have it a stupid purpose just they're ragging it because of the environmental thing, which is fine. You know, even if you asked uh, someone like Steve, he'll say yes, Bitcoin and Ethereum are destroying the earth. They're not. NFTs. They're not the they're not nearly the biggest outputters of uh, carbon. Yeah, but I think the reason why people have so much disgust for it is because what the energy is used for is seen as incredibly abstract, like as having no value whatsoever because it's totally intangible. And so there's this philosophical hatred of NFTs as being this sort of, oh, you just own a JPEG, when that's not really it. What you own is a certificate of authenticity that is you know, provable using... Yeah, uh, proof of work logic. Like right? the the only person and, the only person who can really ideologically oppose them is like someone like Banksy, who's like all <laughs> like like all art should be anonymous and you can't it should not be attributable to anyone and it should be completely free all the time. 
Yeah. So if well, you're a Banksy he doesn't, person, he doesn't believe that because he sells art all the time. Yeah, if he's you're, a multi-billionaire. If you're like philosophically opposed to things <laughs> like that, I mean, yeah, I don't know if I'm actually philosophically in favor of NFTs because I don't know if I think art should be able to be attributable to anyone. Um, but what I think I can't argue with I've more that, really. Yeah. What, what I, I think people what they're more disgusted with is the fact that like like these graphical user interfaces or like that Disneyland version of the Taj Mahal, this is seen as an ersatz and removed form of art. It's seen as uh, and some guy, a guy we haven't mentioned yet, but I think is pretty relevant to this entire conversation is Baudrillard, right? Because Baudrillard talked a lot about simulacra, uh, simulations and simulacra, right? And how like a photograph is like a simulation of reality and a photo of that photograph is a third stage simulacra. And how when things become more removed from the original product of reality, um, they take on this sort of disgusting form or they take on this strange form or something that causes unease or misinformation or is generally kind of, um, well, I don't know if he ascribes a value judgment to simulacra. He's just describing a phenomenon that exists, that we make simulations of simulations and our concept of reality is mediated by the simulation and not reality itself. And I think that's what people dislike about NFTs more than anything is the fact that this is an abstraction of art. Like when you own a piece of art, like a, a traditionally you own the canvas, you own the physical piece of art, you can look at it, you can see the brushstrokes. If you're cavalier, you can touch it if you want. And the idea of that artwork just being in a digital space and not being tangible and being infinitely reproducible if you just take like a screenshot of it or something, it is lesser than than the actual physical object. Yeah, but we have this um, paradigm like in music. So you, if, if you don't know, Taylor Swift has re-recorded her second album because she doesn't own the recording of her first album, but she does own the abstract songs. So she can mm -hmm. re-record them and get the full rights back but there's two sets of rights when you're licensing a song for use you sell the actual recording and you sell the abstract rights like to the, the like the concept of the song yeah the 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 copyright so what taylor swift is going to be able to do because uh, she wants to basically give the middle finger to the asshole who um bought owns her songs because he's a sex abuser um is she's going to be able to deny the it's called sync rights when it's a movie the sync rights to all of her music even if they want to sell the songs to like a commercial or a movie and then she can give them the rights to the new recordings and make all the money herself so it's a, a genius mm -hmm. move i think taylor swift could be the next jeff bezos <laughs> let's hope Let's hope she shaves her head and starts taking HGH. Gets all. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> gets all big. Taylor Swift, please start a media empire. Um, come on the show. Yes. Also, come on the show, T Swift. <laughs> we are big fans. Big fans. Yeah, the I other, know. the other thing that I want to draw attention to is um, art forgeries. So that's what I was talking about. Say you own a traditional piece of art, but 
uh, I mean, in the art world, forgeries are a hugely common thing, especially of ver very valuable pieces of art. There have been endless stories about, oh, yeah, this thing that was in the Louvre for years, turns out it's fake. The real one was in a German bunker for uh, and owned by Hans Blufeld. Uh, <laughs> but the idea of, like, owning that physical piece of art, what if it turns out to be a forgery? Then it's worthless. All of its value is gone, you know? So, um... So what would have really mattered there is that verification of authenticity. And what an NFT can do is verify authenticity much better than you can in reality, which is what's weird. What makes the art valuable is not only the physical object, but also the faith and the promise that it is actually authentic. Yeah, that it only works. So, it only works until we invent quantum computing, in which case all the crypto algorithms that they used will be uh, reproduce uh, reproducible, which I'm looking forward to. Um, they'll have to yeah. they'll have to be on top of it with quantum computing. Um, the reason being is that quantum computers will be much, much, much more powerful than anything we have today. So they'll be able to decode the hashes in a snap and, um, it, all the crypto, that'll be the next big paradigm shift. Um, if you're looking out for them, you want to make some money on a crypto market. Whenever they invent the first quantum crypto coin will be, uh, that'll be one to, to look for. Mm-hmm. Quantum coin. Yeah, in the next uh, 50 to 80. Just to put a, quantum in front one, of everything. 1,000 years from now. If you're alive in 1,000 years, when they actually figure out quantum computing, which is my, my guess when that'll happen. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, this um, this talk about uh, uh, this, this technology and how people are kept pacified by technology. Um, that sort of goes into larger theories in the House of Decline universe uh, that uh, I want to foment now into something yeah. that I call... I'm sure it already... Does the phrase techno-fascism already exist? Yeah. I'm sure it does. Yeah. Let me... It does. Let me look it up. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I mean the, there's some... Like, Stevenson goes into that, like, the, the pacifying, because, like, the the world is too complex to comprehend everything in detail so interfaces are useful um because they they simplify and then you can also use them to instill values like we were talking about like and if the values that they are instilling are pacifying then perhaps that's good when you have a human who it's in their nature to be aggressive sometimes or maybe most of the time because it's a mm -hmm. harsh world out there and maybe we need to be pacified. Okay. Yeah. Well, something that the the old the old adage, uh, bread and circuses, right? Mm -hmm. um, the and it was seen as a cynical thing. Who who was it? Was a Roman emperor that first said you need to give people bread and circuses in order to? Yeah, it was. Em I, uh, I believe it was, it was Emperor um, Biggest Dickus. Biggest Dickus. Yeah. It was Emperor Agrippum of Biggest Dickus. Agrippum of Biggest Dickus. <laughs> Agrippum of Biggest Dickus. And, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, the, 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 uh, the idea that what you need in order to have a pacified, uh, cattle-like populace, you just need to feed them and you need to keep them entertained, right? And the question that America and the modern neoliberal capitalism is, what if we can do this with just circuses? 
and it's been working so far. It's like mm-hmm. people have been not noticing that the, their bread is getting less day by day. What if we made Bud Light and Miller Light and Coors Light and then told people that they were different? <laughs> <laughs> But exactly, circuses. It's like, it's not actually nutritious. It's just the same uh, bland, endlessly reproducible thing that seems different, uh, and you're entertained by the novelty, so you ignore the fact that your uh, life is actually depleting and that you're doing something bad to your body. Mm-hmm. Uh, fascism does already exist as a term, but I sort of use it in a different way. I, I see it as interchangeable, with neoliberalism because I think there is an argument to be made that the current neoliberal hegemon does kind of uh, or can easily slip into a form of fascism you know like when Jonah Goldberg that awful uh, shitty Republican commentator wrote his book about liberal fascism he may have been right but for the wrong reasons Uh, because what we see with this new type of techno-fascism is the idea that this power elite uh, are the only ones that should be given the access to this information economy, this flow of information economy, and they're the ones that get to mediate the language for the rest of the populace. Um, And in doing so, in mediating that language, they can get people to be more compliant with... um, genocidal or fascist goals um which in regular fascism it's different than regular fascism is through the tight control of the flow of information using technology they can more effectively pacify people and um stop resistance you know it's like we know there are still kids in cages why aren't we killing ICE agents, you know? This is a human... Why aren't we John Browning these ICE agents? Because of the internet. Because, mm. you know, we, morally, we probably should well, be there John are, Browning these... There may be... Don't, st- don't quote me on that. This is a, this is a satire Yeah, that show. was satire, this, but... Um, yeah. I Yeah, this is a satire show. Nothing can be taken yeah. seriously. 4chan notably has this, like... like sticky that to the front of their page after someone threatened to blow up um an nfl stadium do you remember that (laughs) do you remember when fortune had to be like nothing in the entire site is real and it's everything is below this line is a lie yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's just what all websites should say even the new york times just to get out of any accountability well because of uh, various laws they can't really be held like no one can really be held accountable for anything said on the internet which is i want to talk about one thing that get your get your input on because we haven't talked about it yet this this thread came out did you see about the person who was visited by two highway patrolmen and blamed aoc for it did you oh, see he that? blamed AOC for it? The, the, he says, yeah, because that thread came out. The, yeah, yeah, it said, this guy said that two highway patrol officers came to my door because I said AOC uh, didn't microwave my tendies on Twitter. Yeah. And so it turns out AOC had nothing to do with this whatsoever, you're saying? No, I don't know. I, I What do you think? I was, my, my first thinking was like, that's awful weird, but like... There, there is absolutely no evidence linking AOC to this. 
but do I do think that people have shown up to people's doors based on shit they said on Twitter? Yeah, I think that's happened probably more than people want to acknowledge. My thinking is this, is that that guy has more than one Twitter account and that he said something about AOC on a Twitter account that we don't know that he has and that the highway patrolman visited him because he did say something fucked up, but just not on the one he posted from. And so people were, you know, they couldn't obviously find it because they don't know about it. But he didn't say anything about AOC that was remotely a threat. It was just like she has bad foreign policy. Hmm. And then was visited by the highway patrolman over that. I don't think so. And then he's trying to say that this is an example of AOC has swung from in the midst of about 20 minutes from being a, a darling of the left to now a certified fascist. Yeah, well, she's she's it, it, the Jennifer Lawrencing of AOC is happening. You know, and everyone loved Jennifer Lawrence, and then within, like, three months, everyone just turned on her for some reason. Yeah. Because she was seen as annoying or problematic or something when she was everyone's special little guy before. Yeah. You know, it's a massive overexposure, and then, you know, uh, hero worship will always do that to you. That's not to say that I don't—I think AOC definitely is a lib. She's a big lib. Like, she's—you're not going to get—and she's, like, her foreign policy shit is routinely bad, but I don't know. What did you expect? What did you expect out of electoralism, baby? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you can't. We're we're a liberal country. We believe in the enlightenment values. Pretty much yeah, everyone. As, yeah, it's. I think people. The reason why people are so disappointed with the Bessemer vote is they think that everyone. I I do think the paradigm where you're an online leftist, you kind of do think everyone else like or normal quote unquote normal people share your online leftist values when that is simply not the case no. most normal people are centrist libs sorry that sucks but that's the truth yeah you have to figure out how to persuade them to join your side it's a persuasion game i yeah i think um that yeah i mean that's a huge battle amongst uh amongst the left is that you know who should we be tr attempting to persuade you know because there there is a certain type i think we've talked about daryl davis on the show before the mm -hmm. the guy that uh, talks clan members out of it yeah where that just seems like yeah it's good that you're doing that for them but it's kind of inefficient in terms of you know gathering a mass voter base or something like that uh so the so i think there's yeah, the questions about how we should persuade and who we should persuade. Um, like, should we try and seek solidarity? Like, I, I didn't, like, the AFL-CIO break up because, uh, you know, racist union members didn't want to break bread with bl uh, black union members. Like, I, I, I feel like there's uh, histories of the labor movement encountering trouble because uh, the racist sectors of the labor movement couldn't form solidarity with uh with uh their poc brothers and sisters dang it uh come on dang pa it past people get it together so the, the future people won't have such a bad time but i've seen when people comment on these threads like it's you see the people it's like well we should have actually moved harder to you know win their favor and some people say no it's actually good that we discard we don't want these people in the movement in the end i probably lean towards the former um just because i think that 
building power, if you're serious about building power and not just serious about, you know, having the best opinions, yeah. uh, then you have to, you have to get terrible people on your side. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you have to get awful. You have to get shitty people who you hate on your side. Yep. And you have to get shitty people who hate you and probably think some very bad things about you on your side. Yeah, everybody That's needs just to work you on power. You got to work on your own ego. Like I got a lot of but ego problems. So you got to work I want to mitigate this by saying that I am in a unique position having being I have never been oppressed. I I am a gay Jewish man who has never been oppressed. I can oppress you. I am like Want me to oppress you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, start oppressing I've me been, right now. I've by been me. less oppressed than you, so I, I can oppress you. Come you over have here. Abs- in a less oppression competition, I will beat you every time. No, you won't. I win. I will beat you so hard. I'm the least <laughs> in oppressed. In the privilege competition. You're one rung down. <laughs> no, wait, no, because I came in and now, like, uh, white gays are, like, the top. What? And the white gay men are, like, the top of the food chain in cities. What? So you, you can't. You're, t- you're telling me I'm no longer on top of the, f- the food chain in terms of oppression? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> All right, well, is this, this why, that's why I got to practice my gay Jewish accent, I guess. You got you to gotta <laughs> practice. Just do your Cuomo voice. That's, yeah. that's like a gay Jewish accent. No, I don't. I think that the, the white heterosexual is still, quote unquote, at the top of the um, I'm a douchebag pyramid. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I suppose so. But yeah, so I think the point is that we're in a better position to talk to these people than, say, you know, very vulnerable, uh, you know, uh, POC trans person. Like I th- we said that before on should we hug Nazis? Our conclusion was yes, but don't. Not everyone should be forced to hug Nazis. Not everyone should be made to hug Nazis. If yeah. you're in a position to do it, as I am, if you're in a position, especially if you're in a position of privilege. And you have, or, and you're like us, uh, like harbored conservative beliefs. I do think you actually have a unique obligation to try and talk to uh, people you don't like, and maybe tell them why uh, uh, socialism or left organizing or union organizing would be materially better for them. Yeah, or using I do think using Linux. Yeah. <laughs> or using Linux. That's what we should say. So uh, we also, uh, Stephen, you've been on Linux. You've always been a Linux guy. No, but no, you've I haven't. A Linux I've been guy. on Linux for like three years. Tell me, tell me about Linux. Tell me about your love affair well, with okay, Linux. Okay, so I started off as a Mac person, with, uh, um, and I learned Mac stuff really well back in two thousand and like five through two thousand and thirteen. Mm-hmm. I was a Mac person for a while, so that's like eight years. My first eight years of computing was Mac stuff. And Mac is based on the Unix um, system. And you can think Unix is like the first operating system that you could put on machines that had different hardware. And now you can think of Unix as like a platonic ideal. There's a famous yes. scene in Jurassic Park where the little girl, they're being hunted by the, by the dinosaurs. And the little girl yeah. goes up to the computer and she goes, it's a Unix system. I know this. And so Unix is like, <laughs> if you know one Unix system, you can get around another Unix system. And it's like, it's like a platonic ideal of operating system. And the, the cool thing about Linux that 
uh, Stevenson goes into is that he compares it to Gilgamesh. A it's it's the Gilgamesh epic for hackers, because <laughs> Unix has tools in it that have were written in the 70s. Like my Linux that I just got, the new Manjaro uh, operating system that I just installed has a program in it called awk and grep and said that were all written in the 70s by guys who are now like knights like been they've been knighted for for <laughs> you sir invented the command gripe which enables They're... you to send a direct message to the administrator of the linux kernel and complain to him um, yeah, they're 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 uh, they're knighted by Richard Stallman, who uses a rolled up hentai in order to knight them. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's like a little bit of jizz comes out when he. Uh, by the way, Richard Stallman, the create the originator of the Free Software Foundation, and the guy who started writing the GNU tool set that enabled uh, Linus Torvalds to program the Linux kernel, he um, is being canceled. For being gross. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for being, real for being a, a, a guy who's always like, are you sure that 17-year-old wasn't asking for it? Are you uh. sure she wasn't asking for it? <laughs> Matt Gates defender Richard Stallman. Basically, <laughs> yeah. So Richard Stallman, um, he's neurodivergent in the extreme. So... <laughs> Whoa! Don't put him on us, buddy. <laughs> the th yeah, the thing is, is like there are other like if he wanted to, he could make that argument back, which is like, hey, you can't make fun of a person like me. I have I have autism. Like, but he doesn't. Um, he he's a kind of a god in the Linux subculture. Who is his canceldom has been attempted many times, and it may succeed this time because big names in Linux like the GNOME. Uh, desktop environment people, uh, the the company Red Hat, which is owned by IBM, has denounced him. Um, he's basically being denounced by everybody and being told to step down from the Free Software Foundation, which he started back in the 80s when he saw that Bill Gates was going to sell software, which was a new yeah. thing at the time. What's crazy about Stallman is he's one of the most moral, principled people on the planet um, who actively... Um, who actively works on his moral stance and, you know, does praxis per his moral stance to the great benefit of thousands of people and also a huge fucking creep. So <laughs> it's like, what are you going to do? Yeah. Um, I don't know. But back to the Gilgamesh comparison. Um, you, Linux is like the Gilgamesh epic because it's like, it's been added to and combed through over the past now 30 years by hackers. And there are notes in it that date back to the 70s. Like you can find manual pages that date way back and little jokes and Easter eggs are all hidden over it. Um, whereas you can't get to that stuff. Like all that stuff's hidden from you on Mac and Windows. You have to know mm. to select the hidden files if you even want to be able to see how the operating system is working. You have to check the hidden files. On Windows now, there's two. You have to check two boxes. There's like a hidden files <laughs> checkbox, and then you scroll down, and there's like actually all the rest of the hidden files. Do you really want to see them? Do you really want to know yeah. how your computer works? Do you, are you sure? Because you might break yeah. something. Um, Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Yeah. 
and even then you can't like get into it you to really liberate your computer you have to um go down to bare metal with the um cpu and scrape the intel blobs out of there because in, <laughs> intel puts proprietary blobs that contain nsa backdoors so any computer with an intel chip in it can be backdoored by the nsa you can sort of take that out by um, installing something called Core Boot or Libre Boot on there, um, and it's supposed to get rid of it, but uh, it, that sucks. Uh, hello, NSA. Fuck you. I fuck you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, in terms of technology that's pacifying us, but I mean, much to your chagrin, we're recording this on Zoom right now, which is uh, recording all of our thoughts. Yeah, but when you pay for Zoom, they encrypt it. Oh, really? Yep. Oh, cool. But I they, guess it, they don't. everybody buys Zoom. Well, no, that's don't the other thing. Zoom. There's no encryption technology that, that the NSA doesn't have a crack to. Like, the, all the good, the best encryption, they don't let us have, and they give us shitty encryption. Like the, I mean, I don't know if you remember uh, the FBI versus Apple. Um, no, I don't. Well, the, the FBI was trying to get Apple to unlock Omar Mateen's iPhone. Ooh. You don't remember that? Ooh. And Apple refused. No, no, I don't remember Apple that. Was like, That's I, crazy. It was one of the like shooters. I think it was Omar Mateen. And so the FBI was like going to sue Apple and be like, you have to let us get, get into this guy's phone. And eventually the FBI just paid some hacker to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> A hacker who probably works for the NSA. Um, yeah. So there, you're, the, long story short, if you you should read the... I believe it's about six thousand page long uh, epic novel by Neil Stevenson called Cryptonomicon, and it will take mm. you f- a, a, give you a, a, his, a fictionalized history of cryptography from uh, World War II to today, and it's a very cool book. Mm. It's cool. So I, I was talking about techno fascism earlier, and I wanted to expand on it because I when I say techno fascism, the traditional definition is fascism that is aided by technology right um uh people would say stormfront the stormfront website for example is a techno fascist entity uh but what i mean so is techno in the two senses of the word techno fascist uh, te- technology and technocracy i.e uh, technology should only be used in the hands... Our most powerful technologies should only be used in the hands of the most qualified. Like you said, the NSA, they have a backdoor to everything because they are the most qualified and they're keeping us safe. And, you know, uh, the flow of this information economy should only belong to the elites because they earn it. And through this techno-fascism, through this concentrating of power in an elite sort of corporate military industrial government complex that just exists nowadays uh we are engaging in an actual type of fascism one that's a lot slower than the older form of fascism one that genocides people a lot slower but one that um is still very much dependent on an us versus them mentality only it's shifted the them to be essentially poor people um because the the uh, you keep the poverty out you build the wall to keep the poverty out right mm-hmm. 
and I think actually Hillbilly Elegy is a is a perfect representation of this new paradigm because what it's doing is it's taking the anger at the culture that you once had toward that like these conservative Americans or liberal Americans once had towards say black people like when Joe Biden in the 80s was saying I don't want my kids to grow up in a racial jungle what you've done is that you've now taken them and put that onto poor white people so it's this way of it's this new form of classist genocide this this way of applying these colonial tactics to the metropole and um, trying to root out our poverty our poverty underclass very slowly and through natural causes and not just in our own country but in uh, the third world countries across the world if they were if they were so smart they should be rich you know Mm-hmm. And that is sort of the um, that is sort of the new fascism that we're under, and the reason why it's more powerful and more insidious than the earlier version of fascism uh, was because the earlier version of fascism, which conveyed the us versus them mentality in a very direct way, in this sort of non simulacra way, in that we have a friend, we have an enemy, and we need to kill the enemy. Um, so as such, because everyone beco- eventually becomes the enemy under fascism and people rapidly become the enemy under fascism, it draws attention to itself and every fascist government, uh, the, the Nazis, uh, Mussolini, got their ass handed to them within 20 years because they were just too aggressive and people saw the threat of them. Whereas with this techno-fascism, um, because it abstractifies so much, because it abstractifies the friend-enemy distinction so much, and it becomes unclear who we're drawing as our enemy. It seems as if, like, no, the poor people are our friends, when really, actually, uh, it coded into the language of this late-stage capitalist neoliberal techno-fascism is this genocidal ambition towards the internationally impoverished. And so that's what I th- that's where I think, you know, we're at. And sort of liberalism in its attempt to control the flow of information and limit it to just the elite in the way that we're seeing with the current Biden administration's and, and current and Democratic and Republican attempts to uh, have control over uh, social media companies and direct free speech that way, we're, we're seeing this sort of increasing techno-fascism and this merging of uh, information only being controlled and mediated by the most powerful um, and in it leading to the classist genocide that is currently ongoing and that we both are participating in with our inactivity. And all of you listeners are too. Well, you so can, feel you good can, about yourself. You can work against it, I was thinking, um, by just developing competencies that will enable you to act outside of the frameworks that they try to force you into. Um, yeah, like if you develop some kind, some basic competencies in in various things, and it does, it can be anything from like technological things on to to anything, then you can escape the the boxes that it, they try to put you into. Like if if you learn how to draw, then you don't have to waste time. Um, maybe I don't know, looking at um other people's like, if I'm, I'm talking about like corporatized things of entertainment like if, if you can entertain mm-hmm. yourself through drawing then you don't have to have a, a netflix subscription maybe if you can yeah if you can build a, a garage door opener then you don't have to buy one from amazon um so if you know if you can 
learn to code is what we're saying. Well, look, everyone I mean, should. Yeah. Everyone should. I mean, that that's the thing about um, that's I don't I don't like the criticism of it being direct as as a direction to like coal miners. Like coal yeah. miners should learn to code just like everyone should. <laughs> I mean, they should everyone should yeah. learn to code because if you know how to do it, then you don't have to rely on um, software someone else wrote that might be tracking you in order to sell you shit that you don't want and that's what's i mean also happening. like i i'm a luddite i'll never learn to code but i still think that you're right everyone should learn to code because if you actually want to do practice praxis as a leftist there's no better praxis than hacking really yeah. there's that's the that's the best thing that you can do to fuck with power there's, is hacking. And in, in terms of they, like coding, there's several layers of abstraction that you can go to depending on like your level. But pretty much everyone can understand how a website works. And you don't have to be creating software um, to quote unquote learn to code. You can just like learn how shit works a little bit. And it, it's... It's insulting to suggest that coal miners couldn't handle that. I mean, it would take a 30-minute conversation, and you could probably explain how a network works and how a web page and a server works using yeah. metaphors that aren't very complicated. Um, well, I think the callousness to that phrase more comes from the idea that— You have like, to do it by yourself, I think. Yeah, coal miners don't have the resources necessarily. If, if it was easy to learn how to code, like if it was—because a lot of people, like I said before— only very few people have that autodidactic ability to teach themselves how to get out of it. Most people require education in order to really pick up a skill. Yep. And um, because you, these these uh, these hypothetical coal miners don't have any of those resources, that's why it's callous. If you were like, say, learn to code, we have all of these wonderful programs and a boot camp and here's an in, a paid internship where you'll get, you know, if that was part of it, then that statement would be seen as less callous. And it but would be seen, it would be seen as less like callous it. also if, or it would be less callous if we provided those coal miners with, like, just an education the way it's supposed to work, which is, like, a good education teaches you how to be an autodidact. Because yes. you, can't, yeah. you can't be in school forever. But what you need to learn in school is how to teach yourself. And so it helps you develop note-taking skills and comprehension skills and, like, source-searching skills so you can figure out how to teach yourself something when you actually find something interesting which you probably won't in school because school sucks as to paraphrase mystical shake your ass teach yourself uh -huh. shake your ass show us what you're working with uh yeah <laughs> uh jim watkins is a morlock yeah he's dude he's he freaked me out he's freaky looking he's a freaky guy uh so we've been making references to the QAnon Into the Storm HBO documentary, which I would recommend that even though it's pretty unpleasant and <laughs> in a lot of... It has very historically important footage in it. In the same way that Citizen 4 is a historically important movie, uh, this QAnon documentary actually uh, is pretty is pretty interesting. Just getting these first-hand documents of these people that have profoundly shaped uh, culture in ways that were very, just unprecedented, even five years before. So I think, yeah, I would recommend the documentary just for that. It's very, like, if you peace out after the first episode because it's too fucking disgusting for you, I totally get it. But 
Yeah, it's very well done. Um, and its theme song is great. And its opening credits uh, graphics are nice. Oh, as well. I didn't like the. That's the one thing I didn't like very much was the credit scene. But the HBO app sucks so much. Every time I try to skip it, it like like starts the episode over. I'm like, no, that's <laughs> the opposite of what I want. And now I have to sit through it again. Like I'm like, and I'm itching to press skip again. But I know if I do, yeah. it'll start it from the beginning. <laughs> so yeah, Ron, Ron, and Jim Watkins just like. Just some of the weirdest looking guys on earth. And the fact that they're... But what's weird about them is their father and son relationship seems weirdly warm. Even dude, <laughs> I don't know how to describe dude, it. it. They're the, the devil and the antichrist. I mean, yeah. it's... Jim Watkins looks like the South Park Satan has gotten a skin suit. It's like he's all bulky in the top. And it's just like, you know, yeah. it's because Satan's black wings are folded up inside his skin. And he's yeah. got he's got these turned up eyebrows, like only a devil would have. He's got a snake <laughs> ring. Did you see his snake ring? He has a snake ring. Yeah. He's the fucking devil, dude. I'm. He's like, into fancy pens and watches. He's yeah. He's he's the big titty devil. Check Ron Watkins's his scalp for a six six six. I guarantee one is there. Yeah. Well, it's it, that's actually a mistranslation. It's actually six one six in the original Aramaic. So, guess who doesn't know? Okay, so check for the, <laughs> check for that one or that whatever. I don't there care. You what. What's the mark of the beast? Isn't the mark of the beast you find like a like a little a little gravy train circling their asshole or something like that? Mm, gravy train. What's gravy train? Is that that's like a gra- well? The gravy train is a metaphor, but now I I used it in the idea of there being an actual it's a, train, a train full of gravy that, that hauls gravy like around a table uh, like a toy train. Yeah, we need it in Canada for our poutines. Oh, oh the gravy train is here for our poutines. Um, you guys have like Canadian Thanksgiving. There's a couple of differences, right? It's early and it's also just all poutine like that's all you eat yeah it's all poutine we have our turkey poutine we have our cranberry poutine (laughs) we have our stuffing poutine yo stuffing poutine actually sounds delicious okay Hmm. hit me up with that Hmm. shit like instead of using fries using stuffing and gravy and cheese curds yeah that sounds better than the regular poutine almost all right i might have to make this soon i might have to make some stuffing poutine uh, hit me up on the next episode of House of Decline to for how that has for how that goes. I will commit to doing and, that this and week. And please email any recipes for various poutine you have to houseofdecline at gmail.com. House is spelled. I, I, un- I will say unironically, I do love poutine. I, I think it is delicious. Um, I was thinking, do you think I should buy like all the misspellings of our website so that stupid people can see it too? <laughs> yeah, you should you should buy the one with the normal spelling of house. Yeah. H-O- yeah. Yeah, I was thinking that. Uh, the non-German spelling of house. Yeah, it's, it's talking about technology. Woo! You've also been you've also been rapidly teaching yourself CSS as you develop our site. It's which not I've been rapid. Very no, by. you think it's rapid, but I started watching that that uh, video lecture like two years ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's re- it's bearing fruit now. It yeah. seems rapid. It takes a while to teach yourself stuff. Like it I mean, because I can't wrap my, I can't wrap my head around that shit at all, which is why I'm very impressed. I think you could. Uh, I'm if sure you if I to. took time to yeah. do it, I know if I wanted to, I could do it. But it's the the key is wanting to, and you actually want to. So like, I'm impressed by your desire to. Well, the, I haven't a, done anything cool yet because it doesn't actually do anything. Like, once we get the the forum up, 
then uh, running that forum will be fun. We should definitely make a House of Decline forum where people can log in and type yeah. a little question. Yeah, I would like, yeah, a free something awful. Uh, that's also not, you know, <laughs> tax got, finally got kicked off of something awful. What a weirdo. I never went on something awful. Oh, I loved something awful deeply. It, uh, it really informed my humor on a lot of stuff, and it was really this, um, what was interesting about it, too, was all these people just doing it for free, like doing these really elaborate, extended, well-researched comedy bits, essentially, just for each other, because it had that sort of culture of elitism in a way where it's like you were all in competition to see who could be the funniest or the cleverest whereas uh i feel like other and and you know the fact that it had that like 15 dollar uh entry fee as a gatekeep to this sort of elitist society was was pretty interesting but it's always why the the comedy was so unique and specific because it had that sort of way to curate its users who were like really serious about trying to make other people laugh with weird internet shit yeah and that's i think that's why i never did it was i didn't want to pay a 15 dollars yeah i'd never looked the forums i was never a forum guy i just like their their front page stuff like comedy gold mine and um although it turns out their flash tub animator schmorky was an actual pedophile so uh, bad news on that bad oh that's why flash has been removed from the internet <laughs> yeah too many actual pedophiles for you and it's also incredibly insecure it like hooks into your video card it's very insecure <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's more insecure than Issa Rae. Like if you, yeah. Fla oh, is that? Oh, oh, because she has a show called that. She has a show called. Okay, I thought you're just she's, being mean. She's, I'm sure in real life she's very confident <laughs> just, because she's a beautiful millionaire. You, you just <laughs> just being mean to that person for no reason, dude. No, wow. no, that's no. She's a no. Wow, dude. Issa Rae's fine. Wow. I don't know anything about Insecure. It seems like it's a very middle of the road, I confidently it, made actually. show. Actually, I watched it. Um, How did you like it? Uh you know. It's like, it's okay. It's not really my type of show. It's not for me. Um, but I yeah. saw the whole thing. It's it's pretty good. Like crazy. Like <laughs> it's like fucked up relationship stuff happens, and like they're all trying to find a relationship and a job. And it's like a be in your twenties type yeah. movie, uh, type show. She she seems like a good writer. Like I I've never seen it, but from from what I've gathered, her fame doesn't seem to be unearned. She seems to like genuinely be very talented. I mean, there's, there's, you know, everyone's fame is undeserved. <laughs> there's no, there's no, no famous person deserves to be famous. And if you talk to a lot of them, they all probably were like, I kind of wish I wasn't famous. No, if you talk to, if you talk to the good ones, they're like, I wish I wasn't famous. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think people that actively seek fame, including me, are, are psychopaths. Oh, you, you crazy. <laughs> you so crazy. Why are you I'm so crazy? crazy guy. I'm a crazy guy because I'm searching for I'm searching for that social uh, community that I especially Twitter, which is all about craving the approval of strangers. It's all about attempting to get strangers to like the things that you say. In my view, I mean, people use Twitter differently, like just amongst their friends or to like as as journalistic things, but. The way that I use Twitter and a lot of other people use Twitter is to, like, gain approval. Am I clever enough? Am I clever enough? Mm -hmm. All of these hearts say that I am clever enough. Mm. All of these retweets say that I am clever enough. So, yeah. 
And yeah, talk about a pacifying graphical user interface or one that, you know, convinces me that I'm doing something when I'm actually doing very little. Uh, or one that, you know, gives me that simulacra of community and as a result makes me pacified, yeah. makes me feel like I'm actually participating yeah. in something. The, the, the sense of community is from their brilliant interface. It's not real yeah. because no one knows you. No one knows who you are. No one, yeah. and then and if and if you when you're interacting with someone on Twitter you you're not interacting with that whole person, you're interacting with the stupid bullshit they said to get you to interact. So it's like, let's try to get as many people interacting as possible. See what happens. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, you know, I don't know. I should probably quit it, but I want to try to promote the podcast on it. So. Oh yeah, I mean, I like Twitter. I think uh, I, I think uh, all social media is bad, but Twitter is definitely the one that produces the funniest content. It's definitely. I I heard someone call Twitter 4chan for libs once, or something like that, and I think yeah, it's pretty much like that. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I mean, the thing about Twitter is that you can't get um, like group. Disc like groups of discussion unless you go into like the dms and have dm groups yeah. like 4chan can you can just go to a board that's only supposed to be about one thing like you can separate yeah. your technology from your video games from your artworks from your politics to every topic yeah but i think twitter does that just by having accounts that are very focused on one thing yeah. like as opposed to having twitter as opposed to having like 40 boards like 4chan does has uh, every user is a board. Every user is a forum unto themselves, which is a weird uh, format. Yeah, but a lot of people don't use... So many people don't actually <laughs> post that much or use it that way that there's no way of grouping people. I, they make you make lists. Like, you can make lists of yeah. users. But the, yeah. the for, 4chan's competitors read it, really, with the, yeah. the, the posts and the boards. Um, Twitter is like... I don't know... It's kind of unique, I guess. There's a Twitter clone yeah. that the the right wingers are moving to called Mastodon. Fun. Yeah, sort of. It's a, there's something <laughs> called the there's something called the Fediv Fediverse or the Fediverse F E D I Fediverse. That's like a. It's not based on Fediwap. Uh no, it's like a decentralized. Everything's decentralized stuff. Like so, the because they're you know they're all getting kicked off social media for being racists and hateful and um yeah vaccine deniers but yeah that's that's a thing that's um should we be kicking off these nazis knowing or maybe these aren't nazis or some of them must be but should we be kicking off these awful awful people um does that set a bad precedent for this encroaching techno fascism? yeah but we can Even take trump take, take trump should trump have been banned from twitter I mean, no. I say no because I love his tweets. But like, he would—he encouraged uh, the big erection at the Capitol. Yeah, he encouraged. But you know, should Joe Biden be banned from Twitter because he did an illegal war in Syria? No, but he didn't. He didn't like encourage insurrections. What I mean. Uh, I guess you know one thing is too far. I guess. Yeah. But what are you gonna do? Well, it seems Alex's video is frozen. Oh, good old Twitter. Good old Jack. Jack Dorsey in the back. All right, Stephen has paused. There is something there is something a little wrong with this video call. So what I'm going to do 
what I am going to do is I'm going to say that this episode has been about technology. A wonderful, wonderful episode about technology. And uh, I, I want to... Oh, I'm reconnecting. And while I'm, uh, while I'm explaining everything away very smoothly... The, the, dude, ignore the man behind the curtain. Ignore the man behind the curtain. We're getting our technical difficulties rearranged here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, talk about how our communication is mediated by technology. Even on this recording, um, this the company that owns my communication with my co-host Steven is now mediating my language. So what do we learn from this Neil Stevenson essay? I think we learned that we're in a world of simulacras and that we try and escape the fantasy matrix. We try and claw our way out of it, uh, but it's no good because it's just matrices all the way down. Okay, uh, this is House of Decline, and I love you all. Goodbye. Hi, everyone. This is Steven as the editor coming in just to say that it was Alex's fault, not my fault that the video dropped. And I told him not to stop recording, but he did anyway. So there we go. See you next week. Bye.